You are listening to episode 62 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, and we have Stan Lee's final issue putting Daredevil in an uncomfortable and deadly place, like the back of a Volkswagen. Welcome to episode 62 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I, J. David Weeder, read Daredevil comics, enjoy Daredevil comics, and talk about Daredevil comics. And as usual, you can call me Dave. And it's been an exciting couple of weeks, guys. I'll be honest with you. I've had a great time. Two weeks ago, as I record this, which is the Saturday before the release, I was in New York. No, I didn't go into Manhattan or any of that. I spent some time at Eternal Con with those galaxy of stars known as Two True Freaks. I got to hang out with the godfathers of Two True Freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, as well as meeting Tim Elliott, who's the host of a brand new podcast called Third Degree Burn, which is about John Byrne comics. Hair metal hero himself, Chris Tyler, was there. Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Podcasts. Paul Spataro and Dr. Bill Robinson, who I want to wish a happy birthday to. They were both there. They have Back to the Bins. And it was a fantastic time. I'll be a little bit honest, you know, in day-to-day life, I'm, I'm not necessarily prone to social activity. I don't jump at it. I'm a little reluctant. I'm not antisocial, but I tend to be shy and a little awkward. Well, all of that was off the table. This felt completely comfortable, like we had grown up together or been friends for years at least. And it's a group of people that primarily haven't done anything but talk over Skype or make shows. And it was such a gratifying time. It was exactly what I needed. A shot in the arm. We uh, started out at Flushing Meadows Corona Park, which is where the 1964 and 1939 World's Fair was held, and met under the Unisphere, which is much, much bigger than I expected. Twelve stories, to be exact. We went over to Paul Spataro's LCS, hung out at the hotel, and then went to the con the next day. But at the con, I got to meet John Romita Jr., who... Well, I'm left feeling a little conflicted because, well, he's good at Daredevil, not so good at Superman, and that's really bothering me at the moment, but I'm not going to bring the negativity into the show. Rich Buckler was there, and I had him sign my Superman vs. Shazam trade, and he did a little Captain Marvel head sketch, and Paris Cullens. And guys, if you ever get a chance to hang out with Paris Cullens at a con, jump at that. Paris had us all basically gathered around, regaling us with his ideas, and he was just so charismatic and so full of energy. So if you see Paris Collins is at a con, beeline it for him, because he is a great, great guy. But it's weird to think that that was two weeks ago. It feels pretty quick, but I was really sad to see that time end, because I was having a great, great time. But those great times were not completely over in terms of the two true freaks. Just yesterday, I had lunch with Sean Engel and his family. We gallivanted around town. Now, Sean, for those of you who may not know, hosts Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern, Guy Gardner, Kyle Rayner podcast. He was around town, really excited to get to hang out with some of my podcasting friends and get to know them off the air and in person. It's something I definitely want to pursue and just feels like the last few weeks have been very ingrained with two true freaks. And I've always considered the show two true freaks adjacent, sort of friend of the two true freaks network. But I'll tell you, if you want to be a part of a great group of podcasters, you want to see the most diverse group of podcasts on the planet, go no further than twotruefreaks.com. 
I've always had a great deal of respect for that group, and you know, hopefully we get to work together more in the future. But that's been my last two weeks, and I know we're here to talk about Daredevil Comics. And this week we are still using the random number generator, just happened to do two issues in a row. But we're going to be looking at the last of Stanley's Daredevil run. But before we jump into that, I have a couple of emails to cover this week. My first email is from Bill Patino. Subject line is Pad Smash. Bill writes, I recently discovered Pad Smash and was listening from the beginning, but recently everything but the last five or so episodes disappeared. I was so excited about you getting a co-host and suddenly you were talking about X-Factor and the Combined Hulk. Might I know where I could find those lost episodes? Even ending at 65, I'd still like to hear the rest of them. Also, congratulations on keeping your Daredevil podcast going. I'm just working through a swath of comic book podcasts that did not last very long. It's nice to know I'll have something to listen to after 2013. And thank you, Bill. The Pad Smash situation has gotten a little odd. What happened was I broke the website. The reason you're seeing so few on the feed is basically I had to quickly move that that stuff over or else we were going to lose the feed completely. It's run off of an XML document and I did not get a chance in that time of emergency to do every episode and update those. So I put a few in there as a placeholder. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with those uh, lost episodes, but at some point they will be completely available and archived. I'm just not sure where yet. I will definitely let you know. And thank you for listening to Pad Smash. That was a great show I did with Lee Busby covering the Peter David run on the Hulk. But of course, yes, you'll have this show well past 2013, probably into 2019 or 2020. I kid you not. I've done the numbers, so you'll have me around for a while. So moving on to the next email, it is from Trevor Daly whose subject line reads, Difference in Miller Origins. Trevor's email goes thus. I actually just started listening to your podcast the last week of April and have been reading the Miller content with you. One thing that I have considered regarding the discrepancies between the two origins, specifically Jack's death and the Electra storyline, perhaps we are seeing Jack's assassination from Matt's idealistic perspective in the series proper. But the humiliating manner in Man Without Fear is the true one. Matt wasn't there, so... It's not so much a repression as an assumption. Dad of the year getting offed with one clean shot is definitely easier to swallow than being beaten within an inch of his life and then mercy killed. Speaking of repression, on the Electra front, the initial meeting. I believe it's closer to the Man Without Fear account, but Matt being ashamed of his reckless behavior with Electra, hence the meeting at school, etc. The only thing I cannot reconcile is Matt's direct involvement in the father's death. Perhaps both accounts have elements of the truth. Also, I was wondering when the whole Catholic guilt aspect was added to the character. I really feel the dichotomy of lawyer-daredevil-Catholic enhances the struggle because he's not only compromising his personal convictions, but also his faith. Trevor, you kind of hit on what I've been noticing more and more with this character of Matt Murdock is that he does idealize things, and that's kind of an extension of him being blind, at least symbolically. In the same way that the whole justice is blind thing plays out, Matt tries to quote-unquote see the best in people and see the most idealistic version of them or the situation. So I think you're exactly right on, kind of along the lines of what I was notating in the book as well. Matt was missing a lot of things with Electra because he was Twitterpated. And yeah, it's much easier to swallow a single clean shot than the whole degrading beatdown. But it's not easy either way. Matt's just trying to push through. He's not denying that Jack died, which would be terrifying. He's not denying that Electra was unstable. He's just not fully acknowledging how much of that was on the table, because maybe he doesn't want to admit his own faults in that, that he could have changed or reordered some of those events. But it's a good observation. It's definitely part of the thing that keeps me going with this show is finding more and more aspects to this character. He's a He can be a jerk at times. He's inept in the romance department, sometimes by his own fault, but sometimes by circumstance. 
he's a flawed hero, and that's what I find intriguing. That's why I'm probably never going to run out of stuff to talk about on this character. But, speaking of talking about the character, we should probably get down to that. The business of what we do here, Daredevil Comics. So I want to thank Bill and Trevor for emailing in, and of course you can always drop an email at mail at daredevilpodcast.com. I'm going to play a quick promo for Sean Angle's Just One of the Guys podcast, and then I will be back right after that to talk about Daredevil number 50, the final Stan Lee issue. Hi folks, Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaikin pen, Guy Gurker collateral damage. No, because that book was utter s***. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming an nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? No, they just streamlined it, so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh, no. In fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. As tempted as I am, I refuse to start by saying last time on Dave's Daredevil Podcast. But, you know, we did leave with a cliffhanger. So just to set up what we're reading this week, Matt was on the outs with both Foggy and Karen after being a jerk to bluff them out of the office because Stiltman was out to kill Foggy, that whole thing. Foggy has now become District Attorney of New York City, and upset about the whole fallout, Matt went home to consider quitting his Daredevil work when he was attacked by a robot sent to kill Daredevil. The robot was created and operated by Star Saxon, hired by Biggie Benson, a jailed mobster who wants revenge on Daredevil. After escaping his brownstone once where the robot was attacking him, Daredevil returned to his home to await a second attack, and sure enough, the robot did return to battle Daredevil in Matt's home gym. After increasing his power, the robot got the upper hand and wrapped Daredevil in a gym mat and prepared to crush our hero, and that's exactly where we left off last week, with Daredevil number 49. So logically, we are looking at Daredevil number 50. This issue had a March 1969 cover date, and the cover itself, well, it shows Daredevil looking dazed on his knees on the New York streets as a green robot, that's right, green, not purple, stomps away from him, smashing cars as he goes. This is just an odd cover. It's so odd in its staging. We're looking at it and you're thinking, what the hell happened? You're not intrigued. You're just like, where's the action? The robot's walking away, having a conniption fit, smashing cars, etc. And Daredevil's just kind of looking confused. It doesn't even look like Daredevil's beaten, per se. Just looks like he's taking a quick break. It's just confusing. It's not engaging. So that's really all I've got on this weird cover. The story inside is entitled, If in Battle I Fall. Written for the final time by Stan Lee, penciled by Barry Windsor-Smith, inked by Johnny Craig, with letters by Herb Cooper. 
It is reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 3, Marvel Masterworks Volume 10, which is Daredevil Volume 5. Digitally, it's only available on Marvel Unlimited subscription service. And that availability is going to be kind of a theme, as most of these digital issues aren't for sale on the Marvel app, at least not at the time this episode is made. Watch them add a whole bunch of them in the interim, from the time I record and edit this to the time you hear it. But jumping into our story this week. The fight with Star Saxon's killer robot continues, with Daredevil wrapped in a gym mat about to be crushed by the arms of the robot. But thinking fast, Daredevil reaches his billy club in its holster and manages to fire a swinging line. The line wraps around a nearby pole, allowing Daredevil to retract it and slide right out just before being tossed into a wall thanks to his greased up costume. Daredevil re-engages the robot who is able to increase its size and overcomes Daredevil once again. And in the midst of the fight, Karen tries to call Matt to sort out their issues. Obviously Matt's a little busy and doesn't take the call. Realizing he can't win by force, Daredevil manipulates the robot into charging at him, with the intention of dodging the charge, which would cause the robot to hit a fuse box in short circuit. But the split-second timing of the maneuver is botched, so now Daredevil is also pinned against the wall as volts of electricity surge through the combatants. The robot may be down, but so is Daredevil. I'm going to stop there for a moment and talk about this section of the story. Thankfully, the issue wastes absolutely no time. It jumps right in where we left off, which was a gripping cliffhanger. And the first thing you notice is that Colin's noticeable style is absent. That's because, as mentioned, Barry Windsor Smith is filling in. Barry Windsor Smith is a British artist who worked on Marvel characters via the licensed books that went through the United Kingdom. It caught the U.S. Marvel's attention, so he did some U.S. pinups as a bit of a tryout. But this issue, all the way through 52 where he fills in, is his first U.S. sequential work. For those wondering where Gene Colan is this month, he was filling in for Marie Severin on Submariner for the next two issues, and a couple of issues of The Avengers for John Buscema, I believe. So don't worry, Gene Colan will return. In fact, we'll see some Gene Colan art next week. But, coming back to the book we have in front of us. Thanks to Daredevil's Billy Club, he ends up coming out of this pretty clean, and you gotta kind of wonder about that greased up costume. Sure, it makes it hard for the robot to grab Daredevil, but at the same time, it's lucky that Matt's not slipping and sliding around like a drunken bridesmaid at the end of the night. Still, it's probably better slipping and sliding than, well, what would have happened to him. If Matt had remained wrapped up when the throw happened, he would have basically been shredded to burrito meat. And then Daredevil rushes right at the robot, and almost gets his hands broken. It's almost like he completely forgot. That last issue he did the same thing and, well, had pretty close to the same result. Not the wisest move in the book, but, you know, you try different things. The story also notes that Matt really can't get a good bead on him. Somehow the robot's able to evade his radar sense, almost like the robot's developing stealth. It occurred to me that this robot is kind of constantly adjusting to any assault that could come at him. Where have we seen that before? Uh, of course, the Borg from Star Trek The Next Generation. And to kind of compare and contrast some of Colin's work versus Barry Windsor Smith, we get a really great angry shot of the robot, right after Matt tries to punch it. Colin made this thing cold and a very scary thing, but Smith makes it living, which loses some of the punch in the scare category, but makes us a little bit more interested in what's going on with the robot, in the robot's head, if you will. And as the robot was getting much, much larger and coming at Matt, I thought about Yoda, and I think... Sometimes you can judge things by size, because this thing looks like it could pulverize Matt. And to kind of reiterate where we were last week, again, we're seeing this fight happen in Matt's own home, in his sanctum. 
This is a place of safety, not something he necessarily equates with Daredevil. This is Matt Murdock's lair. And that kind of creates a feeling of tension because if your home isn't safe, nowhere is safe. You have nowhere to collect your thoughts and hide and feel secure. The Barry Windsor Smith of this era was very much noted for his Kirby-esque style. And this apparently, as I'm looking at the page, includes Kirby Crackle. For those that don't remember what Kirby Crackle is, it's a series of haphazard dots within a field of color making it look like energy crackles. And it's odd that the Kirby Crackle helped me adjust to this art style. I kind of found myself able to wrap my head around it. And once I adjusted to it, the style really is quite striking. Smith draws Daredevil in a really robust form. He's very barrel-chested. At the same time, he doesn't take it to the point where you lose the acrobatic nature of Daredevil. We're still sticking fairly closely to the character models. It's not as abrupt as going from somebody like Jim Lee to Jay Lee. Two really good artists with such drastic styles that it would be jarring. But it is a noticeable difference in style. And of course, mid-fight, we get a check-in with Karen. Yeah, I know we need to track this subplot and the character beats are important, but come on. The only reason I can imagine they put this scene in beyond tracking that story is to kind of give us a moment to catch our breaths. Because admittedly, the last fourth of last week's issue really was one big fight, and the first fourth continues that fight. So maybe it's good to have a moment of breath, and maybe that helps raise the suspense a little bit. I'm not sure. It just felt odd. And then we get a big splash of the robot, well, kind of dominating Daredevil. And even though the robot is Colin's design and Smith is sticking to that, Smith seems to do a little bit more with the power register on the robot's chest. Again, giving it more of a living feel rather than a cold, merciless robot. And it's here after being dominated by the robot that Daredevil kind of clues in. He's not going to win by strength because that's just not going to cut it. The robot's already strong and can adjust itself to become stronger and stronger. What he needs here is strategy and brain power. So Daredevil sets up a gambit to have the robot charge at the fuse box, which is incredibly intelligent. It's also very dangerous, as we saw, but it leads to a really great standout sequence where we're kind of seeing it from the robot's point of view as he gets closer and closer to Daredevil, his hands in front of him. It's incredibly suspenseful, and, and that really does rely completely on the art, and so Smith really does stand up at that stage. And of course, as I mentioned, well, the split-second timing just doesn't quite cut it in this instance. So now Daredevil's still in danger, and the last thing he thinks of is Karen and Foggy, that he hasn't made things right with them. And somehow that sat right with me. It felt right that that would be Matt's last thought. Not the pain, not the actual death, but the fear, and I use that word specifically, the fear of not making things right, leaving things undone with his best friends. That's a very human thought. And it does manage to track the emotional segments we saw last week, where Daredevil really is upset about this to the point where he's done being Daredevil. Combined with the Karen thing, it feels a little hackneyed, a little forced. Where last week it felt right because that was where we started out. And that just tracked naturally through the story. Either way, Matt's last thoughts are very sentimental. But he's still in danger. So is he wasting his last thoughts or is there more to come for the man without fear? Let's jump back into the story and find out. The new district attorney, our own Foggy Nelson, examines his swanky new office and considers contacting Matt. Foggy gets a call from Karen, who is concerned about Matt, and Foggy puts his resolve right back up. Back at the brownstone, Daredevil comes too, but so does the robot, and now it's completely confused about its mission thanks to the fried circuits. The robot tunnels to the crowded streets above and begins lumbering through the city to return to its master. 
His master, Star Saxon, is hanging out in his lair, planning his next robot victims when his creation returns. This time, Daredevil is behind the robot and Saxon decides to deal with it by throwing liquid phosphorus on the man without fear. With the lab on fire and a superhero on his tail, Saxon tries to re-input the command to kill Daredevil but makes a startling mistake. Instead of loading the treated photo of Daredevil, he loads the photo of Biggie Benson, the mobster who hired Saxon to kill Daredevil in the first place. Daredevil makes a valiant attempt to stop the robot, but gets a mecha backhand for his troubles. As the robot lumbers off, Saxon confesses everything and now, Daredevil must stop the robot from storming the prison and killing Biggie Benson. Alright, let's take another time out here and talk some more about this part of the issue. First of all, Foggy now has a big, big office. And it's an office we get to explore because we have seven, count them, seven panels on a full page of Foggy just hanging out. Now alongside that same page type for Karen, we have two pages of people hanging out simply to track this idea that everybody's kind of mad at everybody. Again, I know we have to track this, and maybe it does help build suspense, just not in me, but it felt forced. It felt very, very forced and just wedged in unnecessarily. I will say, though, that Foggy's body language, as he's hanging out, the facial expressions, these are true to form. They do feel realistic. And we get a little bit of Foggy's mentality. I mean, let's be honest, Foggy is a big softy. Even when he thinks Matt is a complete jerk who has just completely written him off, he still wants to make up because this is his brother from another mother. Now, you ask me, and I know I've harped on this before, but I'm going to harp on it again. I think if Matt were to tell Foggy his secret, that might make things a little bit easier. I can't think of anybody else who would deserve to know the secret more. Especially for a guy, as he notes here, that lives in the shadow of Matt. Being district attorney is Foggy's chance to get out of that shadow, so it's an exciting new endeavor. But it's true, and we have to acknowledge it at least, that Foggy really doesn't tan very well living in Matt's shadow. I mean, Matt's flashier, he's better looking, he's a great orator. Being blind, people normally fawn over him, so he gets a lot of attention that way, and Foggy in a lot of ways is the brain, while Matt's the face. Not that both men aren't competent in their respective areas. Foggy can be a good orator, and Matt can be an extremely intelligent lawyer. Both are great at it, but they're even better when they're in those respective corners where Foggy is the research, Matt is the presentation. The drawback to that is Foggy is spending his time in libraries. He's second chair most of the time, so it's easy for others to completely underappreciate him. So it's nice to visit with Foggy at this stage, but again, it's just awkwardly placed into this fight with a giant freaking robot. And the robot has now dug up through the street in a great shot. And as he's coming up, you see these many, many faces in the crowd. Smith does himself proud here. All of these faces are distinctly different. They have different reactions. These are very different people. And of course, we're seeing an escalation here because what was one-on-one -on -one between Daredevil and the robot is now out in the street. So now everybody is in danger. So the action is, well, about to build. Realistically, the robot's pretty content not to hurt anybody, but Matt makes sure that they're aware of that by, get this, Jumping on top of a car and screaming, don't make any sudden moves. Daredevil, you kind of need to take your own advice. Now granted, I guess Matt would make himself a target, but who knows what kind of collateral damage could be made in that scenario. And we return to Saxon's lair, although this time, without Colin drawing it, it loses some of the moodiness. And we find Star Saxon counting his future bucks because, well, he's got the ultimate weapon, doesn't he? 
people will pay him money and he can charge nations across the world to get rid of their enemies and rid the streets of criminals. Wait, wait, that last one. Star, I want you to review that one. Because I don't know if you're aware of it, but murder being a crime, you would become a criminal. I know you're misunderstanding it, Star, so that's why I'm letting you know. And poor Star Saxon, I almost want to feel bad with him. His day just goes right down the toilet. From envisioning a ton of money to the robot and Daredevil crashing in. All at once, things are just going to crap. And of course, the liquid phosphorus. All villains must have volatile chemicals out in the open and ready at any time. Can you imagine the accidents that must happen to these people? Oh, fooey, the hydrochloric acid under my pillow leaked. Now I have no ear. But it does lead to a fire in the lab, which is dynamic, and combined with the Kirby crackle, Saxon suddenly looks dramatic. He doesn't have the cool anime look that Colin gave him, which kind of bums me a little. He looks more human, which loses some of the mystique. And looking more human for Star Saxon basically means looking like Rick Jones after a week-long cocaine bender. But while Saxon does look fairly dramatic, it's Daredevil that wins this one. Because in the shadows and the fire, Daredevil just looks boss. Windsor Smith uses some great, great lighting to make Daredevil look so dynamic and so stylized, I guess would be a best way to put it. Like Colin, though, Smith's art looks sharper and more dramatic in the black and white of the essential. The colors are especially bright, especially on Digital Unlimited. It's not day glow per se, but it's noticeably bright. It shifts the mood back from a horror vibe back to a straight sci-fi. Which, I mean, it is what it is. Sci-fi is fine. It definitely is a sci-fi story, but I kind of miss the slasher movie vibe that I had going on last week. But then again, it's hard to maintain a slasher movie vibe when Daredevil reveals he has an asbestos-coated costume. So we have a greased-up costume, which is also coated in asbestos. How much does Daredevil have on his clothing? And how lucky is he that some of those chemicals didn't have a volatile reaction? What if the asbestos had really combined with the grease and given Matt a terrible rash? But of course, here's the twist to the story. Not only did we escalate it from a one-on-one -on -one fight, now the robot is out to kill the guy who hired Saxon. So the story keeps edging higher and higher, and let's be honest, with this particular turn, we have to admit, Star Saxon is bad at life sometimes. So how bad does it get from here? Let's jump back in for the final leg of this issue and talk about what occurs. A winded daredevil pushes himself to get back on his feet and trails the robot to the prison where the mecha threat breaks in. The guards begin shooting at the lumbering machine and Daredevil gets clipped by one of their bullets. With only moments to spare, Daredevil gets to the cell of Biggie Benson. But instead of being thankful or even believing Daredevil when he says that a killer robot is on its way to kill the mobster, Biggie instead decides to beat Daredevil. After the long fights with the robot and the flesh wound from the gunshot, Daredevil falls to the floor where Biggie continues to beat the man without fear. That beating stops though as the wall of the prison splits open and the robot arrives to kill its prey and Benson has just knocked out his only hope. And so closes the final issue of Daredevil from the mind of Stan Lee. So there it is, that's how the Stan Lee era of Daredevil ends. And this section of the story begins with Daredevil getting backhanded by the robot. And I'll tell you what, you feel this slap. It's harsh. You hear it in your head. Teeth are flying. So it's a wonder Daredevil even got up. However, let's think about this. What is Daredevil doing here? Daredevil is trying to stop the robot from killing the very man who sent the robot to kill him. But for Matt, Biggie needs to face justice. 
So Matt wants to make sure that the man does face the criminal justice system. But at the same time, I still think, man, he just got beat up. I mean, he's taken a lot. And even after that, Daredevil pushes himself and does not give up. He pushes himself to get back up. And it occurred to me, well, this isn't just to save Biggie. This is to save anybody else in the robot's way. So that makes perfect sense that Daredevil would push to make sure the prison guards don't get hurt. That leads to us having Daredevil break back into the prison that he broke out of two weeks ago in issue 46. That's right, yet again, we're at state prison. And these guards are pretty surprised when a robot comes bashing through the outer wall. One of them mentions, I've heard of guys breaking out of jail. Well, that made me think of Harry Houdini and his theory on safes. Because most of the time, safes are built to keep people out, not in. It's clever, isn't it? Now, in comparison to what we saw earlier, the deadline's of course looming closer and closer, so instead of a crowd shot with a lot of diverse-looking guards and details, every guard in the yard looks generic. Like the guards at the prison are a bunch of clones. They're also extremely trigger-happy. They even clip Daredevil at one point, but it's just a flesh wound. And Daredevil makes his way into the prison, and he gives this guard a cosmic backhand. I mean, it looks astounding. So I guess Daredevil's cool with assaulting guards this time around to break in, just not so much to break out. Double standard, but cool with me. Now, Daredevil, giving this backhand, says the guy won't feel anything, he'll wake up later. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. Because judging by the cosmic power that's coming from this backhand, or just the expressive art of Barry Windsor Smith, I think this guard may be paralyzed from the neck down. I'm no medical expert, but I'm surprised there's not a Gwen Stacy-style snap to this scene. It's pretty brutal, and again, the deadline must have been approaching. Because we see these generic guards, and we start seeing Biggie losing detail on the very same page as it progresses forward. So as we continue through the issue, we start getting diminishing returns art-wise. But at the same time, it's the cliffhanger that sells me. Benson is just an absolute, unrepentant ass. He beats Daredevil, and then he's surprised when the robot comes flying through. Good cliffhanger, now we're not going to be visiting the next issue next week. So just to kind of fill you in on where we go from here, Biggie dies when the robot falls on him. Nope, not a joke. The robot freaking falls on him. I mean, it's a pretty massive fall, don't get me wrong, but that's what happened. The robot is rendered lifeless thanks to a Tony Stark invention, and when Saxon tries to initiate the self-destruct, Daredevil stops him. But now Saxon knows that Daredevil is really Matt Murdock. Incidentally, Matt makes up with both Karen and Foggy, and after everything at the prison, Matt reacts to a radioactive particle, gets paranoid, teams up with the Black Panther, and in the end, has to let Saxon escape because he has no proof that Saxon ever committed a crime. I'm going to fill in some more gaps on that next week. And since next week, Gene Colan returns, and I don't see any Barry Windsor Smith Daredevil in our future, let me kind of wrap up his story as well. Smith would work on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., as well as the Avengers, but he would make his name on Conan the Barbarian, which he wrote with Roy Thomas. On this book, his style evolved, and he ended up winning several awards. Later down the road, his last work for Marvel was the Weapon X story in Marvel Comics Presents, and since the late 90s, he's kind of been out of mainstream comics. So, what is my final verdict on Stan Lee's final issue? Well, the story constantly raises the stakes, from the one-on-one -on -one fight, to the streets, to the face-to-face -face with Saxon, and then rushing to save Benson. We have those stop-offs with Karen and Foggy, which are arbitrary placeholders for subplots, and at best allow us moments to catch our collective breaths. It was just a bit too long. I think this could have been split up into one page, and that could have been that. I think this particular issue could have used some Gene Colan. And that's not saying anything negative about Smith. Smith was worthy. 
However, if this is going to be Stanley's final issue, Colin being there would have brought a feeling of familiarity and a pair of colleagues that had worked on this book for some time. Now said, that's not a slam against Smith. Smith has some storytelling chops. He's still a bit raw at this stage, but he looks good. He's not Colin, but he doesn't try to be. I mean, granted, the characters are on model, but they're definitely in Smith's own style. Star Saxon is, well, much better than some villains we have had. He's unapologetically evil, he's remorseless as his robot, and as the story progresses into Roy Thomas's run, who took over the book after Stan, he ends up being a standout villain in a limited run. He's definitely effective in short bursts, and it produced a great villain in Machine Smith. So again, Roy Thomas takes over Stan Lee. It's not a great ending to Stan Lee's run. It's more a challenging passing of the baton. It's almost Stan saying, hey, follow that. In comparison to last week's issue, it loses some of the mood of the first. And even though it escalates quickly, it falls back on being a straight action tale and not being effective enough and really bringing us the doubts that Matt is plagued with right now. We get some offhanded references and of course the stop off with Foggy and Karen, but it doesn't follow through. It's like those two stop offs were all we really need. Placeholders. Well, it definitely intrigues you. You definitely want to read the next issue. But Thomas does a little bit more with Stan's setup than Stan really intended. And it works. Issue 50 is definitely an adjustment period. You're getting used to Barry Windsor Smith, who, again, is not colon, but holds his own. To give it a letter grade, this would be a B-. Generally favorable, but very flawed. However, I think I've gone on enough about this issue, so that's going to wrap us up for this week. Next week, we jump ahead in which a new villain is striking fear into the citizens of New York with a crime wave, and this villain's name is Crime Wave. Well, truth in advertising. So come back next week when Daredevil faces Crime Wave's chief assassin, Torpedo. Nope, not joking. That will be next week in Daredevil number 59, randomly chosen by the random number generator for just you and I. In between now and then, please feel free to visit DaredevilPodcast.com. There are links to subscribe to the show via iTunes, RSS, and Stitcher. If you are on iTunes, please take time to review the show. It helps others find the show and raise the show's profile, which is highly appreciated. While you're at DaredevilPodcast.com, you'll see a handy contact form to drop the show a line, or if you want to do so directly, feel free to use mail at DaredevilPodcast.com. Unless requested, all emails are read on air. And if you're out and about on social media, well, I'm there too. Facebook.com slash DaredevilPodcast or Twitter.com slash DaveWeeder. So feel free to look everything up. I'll be glad to have you. And hopefully you'll be back in seven short days when we continue. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.